cancer side and the treatment I had from the oncology lot, the surgeons, second to none, the chemotherapy, everything. They had an energy about them. They were kind, polar opposite with the psychiatry side of things. They moved slowly. They had no energy. It was a lack of respect, actually. It was just basic human politeness, manners. I don't know. They were doing us a favour. Hey there, my name is Sean, and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives, and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. As always, a giant thank you to everyone who has joined me here on the podcast since we launched in July of 2020, and to everybody who listens. Wherever you are and whatever your reason or reasons are for listening, thank you very much. A special thanks to NAMI North Carolina. They invited me and a guest to record a live in-person conversation. We did that earlier this week at their annual conference in Raleigh, North Carolina. It was a presentation as well as an opportunity to record a show, and that will be out later this year, Melissa in North Carolina. So thank you for that, Melissa. I really appreciate it, and I think that the audience appreciated it as well. It was a really interesting experience. First time, but hopefully not the last. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. You'll see a few links in the show notes. One is to leave us a recorded message if you prefer that way. And there are also a couple of ways you can help us out financially if you'd like to do that. We do want to reach more people in more places so they can hear these survivors and their stories and maybe help them feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. And that does take some time and resources and, well, let's face it, money. But however you help us out, however you support us, we appreciate it. We really, really do. And one other way you can help, and I haven't shared this in a while, is if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can rate and review Suicide Noted. I don't know exactly how that works, the whole algorithm thing, but apparently more ratings and more reviews helps people actually find it when they search for podcasts like this. It's more likely to come up in Spotify, in Apple, in Stitcher, or wherever they listen. So if you want to take a moment to do that right now, that would be a huge help. And finally, we are talking about suicide on this podcast, as the title suggests. Please take that into account before or as you listen. I do hope you listen, because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Becky. Becky lives in England, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Becky. We're both blurry background people. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And you're across the pond. Yeah, that's right. A place called Wellsbourne, which is near Stratford-on-Avon. Shakespeare's. Have Ooh. you heard of Shakespeare? I'm sure you've heard of Shakespeare. <laughs> don't, don't, make any, don't make any assumptions. <laughs> I have heard um, of Shakespeare, yes, yes. So, yeah, I'm um, in, a, in a sort of village, a big village, not far from Stratford. I am so curious. What's the word for more than curious? Like, what's more than curious? That's me. Yeah. About 
how you stumbled upon it. I'm just curious how you stumbled upon this podcast. Because look, you don't find this podcast unless someone told you about it without putting the word suicide into one of those search exactly. engines. One day, maybe we'll be big enough where someone could put in like mental health and it'll come up. I don't think that's where we're at. Mm. How'd you find it? And why in the world would you be in such a small percentage of humans that then go the next step and say, no, oh, and I want to talk to this random bald guy about something so intimate and so personal? Yeah, so I um, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer July 2021, so last year. It came as you know a massive shock, obviously. I physically I was at the and probably mentally actually, in you know, in many ways, I was probably the fittest I'd ever been. Yeah, I I, I could do two hours on the turbo indoor biking without much bother, big into swimming, outdoor swimming. I've got a history of uh, mental illness going back quite a long way, on and off. So very some big episodes, i.e., drop into big depression very quickly. And then seemingly come out of it very quickly. And I've had about four of those. First one was age 19. So there is a history there. But basically, mm. this big diagnosis came and yeah, I, I couldn't handle it. And I, as is the way with with me, I guess, and and uh, how I deal with big situations, maybe not very well, I, I just dropped off a cliff into, you know, a deep depression quite quickly. Um, which tends to be the pattern with uh, when I've been unwell in the past in that way. That And that almost became, you know, the, the bigger thing in terms of health. It sounds ridiculous, but, you know, cancer, it was a life-threatening thing. But the the depression was more life-threatening, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Did you get diagnosed with anything? So when I was 19, I guess it was called a psychotic depression in the end, I guess on the discharge, and that would be in my records. but. Just very recently, in fact, last week, I had a consultation with a, a new psychiatrist because I refused to see previous one that I saw last year because that was a horrendous experience. New psychiatrist was great and actually and interviewed me for an hour and a half, had students in and was really lovely. And then kind of said, I think you're bipolar. So, yeah, it was quite a relief. Yeah, of course. And he was very fine with the fact I don't want to be on meds. I've had terrible experiences with with being medicated. Yeah, that weird feeling of a, a sort of relief with a, I don't like the diagnosis thing either, because I don't want it to define me. And, and basically, yeah, that, you know, society, the way they view, unfortunately, still, this stuff isn't great. So right. let's try to put the pieces together. Uh, and I know that can be very hard, because we're talking about huge things in, in your entire life. When was your first attempt? Yeah, so if we went back to the first the first episode, which mm. was would have been early nineties, so I was nineteen. I'm forty eight now. So uh, I just left school. I was going to have a year off to travel um, before I went to university. So I had a place at uni to do biological sciences. So I had that in place for mm. whenever, like a year after leaving school. Went traveling to Africa. Did a ski season. Worked in a ski resort. Came back from that and started to feel very odd you know the feelings and thoughts that were going through my my head were very unusual for me and I started to ruminate and think I'd made a complete mess of my life all the guilt and everything I examined in my head all my life I'd sort of thought I've done everything wrong I didn't really know what was going on because I'd had a great life you know some of the your stories from your the people have been on your podcast they've had terrible Mm -hmm you know, abuse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my heart goes out to them. It's shocking. 
what they've had to deal with. So I'd had none of that. You know, I'd had a lovely childhood, amazing, in fact. You know, been relatively successful at school. I, you know, got the grades to go to uni, blah. And also, you know, it was quite stiff, stiff upper lip. My mum came from a military background. They didn't really talk about this stuff. <laughs> you just got on with it. British and military yeah. and a nice childhood. You're not allowed to be depressed, young lady. <laughs> Come on. You had it too good. It was a bit I, um, a bit like that. But I, I was very honest. We were on holiday in a sunny place in Spain as a family. And it was really nice. And I just said, I don't want to be alive. That's mm. how I felt. What did mother say? You know, it's really hard. She was gutted. Yeah, we came back for the holiday and, you know, things getting worse. I wasn't talking to my friends. I was sort of just staying at home. I wouldn't go out. Um, they all just thought I was being, didn't want to see them. They were all kind of thinking, what's going on? I wasn't answering the phone, all, all those sort of things. So I was taken to the doctor. Over here, you go to a GP first, mm-hmm. your general practitioner. He was a 65-year-old near retirement type doctor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ashtray on the so I was prescribed um sertraline, I think, by the GP. Mm-hmm. Then you know things didn't change. So within a couple of weeks, he basically said, You need to go to hospital. You know, I was honest, I did feel obviously suicidal and I did express that. When you say suicidal, because we use these words, people might use them differently. Yeah. Are you thinking about method? Do you have a date? Or is it more, I yeah. don't want to be alive, I don't know what to do about it, I'm freaking exactly. out. Exactly. Okay. It was more that I, I really didn't have a plan or a date, nothing. It was more, I just don't want to, I don't know how to stop this pain in my head. Right. I don't understand it. I don't know what's going on. And mm. I would sort of do things like, I mean, it sounds ridiculous. It's stupid and ineffective, but I would put a paper bag, um, not paper, a plastic bag over my head and sort of hold my breath and see, you know, maybe put a pillow on my head. I, it was, it was never going to do anything. And I certainly didn't, I didn't want to take pills, you know, mm. overdose. I certainly didn't even, that didn't even cross my mind. So it was sort of almost gestures like desperation, but I was honest with my mom and the doctor, you know, that honesty got me put into a, this is, you know, how I felt. It got me put into a psychiatric hospital and it was absolutely horrendous. Yeah. You're punished for being honest. It did feel like that. I get the argument that that might've been the place that place maybe no, because our hospitals suck. And I assume it sounds like they're equally bad there in many ways. You needed help, but that's not the place. No. How long were you in that place? I think it was three months in total. Um, did you get out worse than you came in? No. What I did, which is really interesting, th- this is how I perceive it now. Maybe at the time I didn't really realize. I kind of played the game that they, I knew they wanted to get out because yeah. I actually got worse when I got in there. It slowly dawned on me that to escape, I needed to do, you know, literally felt like that. I had to be a certain way. And I guess in a way, being that way, I eventually did become sort of better, if that makes sense. You know, it's difficult to look back to your 19-year-old brain. You know, I'm obviously looking at it with a 48-year-old brain, but you know, I've got vivid memories of certain things that happened there. You know, I was basically in a little cell with a no door, you know, with a bed, you know, nothing in it. I think there may have been a little window. So you were in prison. Well, I felt like that. I don't know what people always need. Obviously, I can only maybe talk about myself. I will say most people will never benefit. A little nature, some good company. I'm not minimizing or simplifying what people need. 
as a mm. starting point is going to be a hell of a lot better than sticking someone alone in a cell. That's never going to work. Yeah. Add to that someone sitting at the end of the bed, essentially looking at you 24-7 and writing notes about you. Oh, my yeah. God. I would kill them. I would become homicidal. I was saying I got worse there. I did because I went in, yeah, depressed, admittedly. But I started to, I, I guess, I went into a psychosis because I was like, this can't be real. I These are yeah. actors. And I started to think that it was all staged. It when it was it's like being in a movie. Wow. So then wow. they put me on chlorpromazine. Chlorpromazine is an old, I don't think it's used much. It's um, antipsychotic, but it actually knocks you out. And my motor control used to go. I used to, I think I had it three times a day. And I'd literally had a few drop attacks where, because I got low blood pressure anyway, but I'd stand up after having it and just drop. You know, I was like, what the hell's going on? I, I thought maybe I'm having a fit or I've got epilepsy. And and then it, it would just knock you out. Such a big sedative that I would be asleep. Yeah, that was so, yeah, I definitely got worse in there to the point where it was sort of indicated. And I can't really remember who said it, but it that if I didn't get better, I would go on to the long stay unit, which was another building, like an old asylum building. So Victorian, this massive or scary looking but I mean it's quite beautiful in a way but it it was scary and it was known as the long stay bit and they sort of said you'll have to go on there if you don't get better and have ECT. Becky if you don't get better yeah now let's threaten people good I like the way this is sounding great good for you England yeah all right well I get to call shame on them whoever is responsible for that they won't hear this podcast because (laughs) they're probably dead or don't give a shit or they're just busy sitting on the ends of beds watching people do things and taking notes. You know, there were some nice individuals, as you know, there always is in life, isn't there? Sure. And then there's the not nice ones. And and I'm not saying they were they weren't evil, you know. I think they were working in a system that was that was the system. You know, probably it's very hard to stand up and go, This is shit. What are we doing? Oh, yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll lose your job. You'll probably be blacklisted. So yeah, change yeah. your career. Right. This is very systemic. I get it. Does it excuse it? Probably not. But yeah, I get it. Most importantly for our talk here is you actually didn't get better. You did get out. Yeah. But three months probably felt like a lot longer than three months. Yeah. And maybe, you know, it was shorter than that. But it in my mind, it was three months, you know, that block of time. So what does 19 year old Becky do when she gets out of this? So I then went, reflecting now, you know, I went on a bit of a manic phase, not to the point that it was, you know, dangerous. I was certainly living the life of Riley a bit, you know, a bit student-like. So I had another year before I went to uni. So yeah, I came out of the hospital, you know, gradually got back in with friends and blah, blah, and didn't really talk about what just happened. Did anybody know of your friend group? Couple only. And then even then they didn't talk about it or ask me or because for me i'm a pretty curious guy that probably won't come as a surprise where were you for the last few months i know i know i guess they were all or most of them had gone to uni or got a job or you know actually we'd all spread out a bit so i'm still back at home hometown most of my friends from school who were the majority of my friends anyway had all kind of gone elsewhere flown the nest as it were we'd all gone our separate ways but anyway so you could get away with being out of it for a while with not too many questions but the one person that did know everything but didn't really question me which was always very supportive and she was very accepting you know there was no judgment and she was brilliant we went traveling together to Australia and New Zealand for six months 
eight months actually yeah we had a great time but in that traveling time I was probably a bit manic but not to the point that people would have gone oh that's you know that behavior is a little bit do you know what I mean it wasn't yeah you'd have just gone a student having a yeah yeah so that was that year and then the original question was your first attempt so yeah that so so and you had said like well how do you define that so that experience that you just shared was what you consider your first attempt I don't really I just think it was but it was a big defining thing in my life it sounds like it was the first time you started feeling suicidal for sure yeah 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 yeah, so I went to uni, um, three years degree, had a good, good time. I suppose I had a few highs and lows, but nothing, I just think normal highs and lows that, you know, you have at that time in your life. What am I going to do in my life? What job am I going to do? Yeah, what am I doing in my life? That Those sort of existential kind of questions you keep having, but at that time it becomes a bit more pertinent because you've got to get a job really and mm-hmm. support yourself. That would have been 1996 I finished there. And then we were all celebrating you know, we didn't have any exams on, it was all done. And my dad died mm. in the June of 96. He committed suicide. How old was he? I think he was about my age now. That's what I was just thinking yeah, is I wonder yeah. if you're like his age or getting getting near there. Yeah. Mm. Well, there's a sort of a bit of a thing around it in a way that it was never said it was suicide in terms of, you know, inquest investigations because there was no suicide note. He was a pilot, not an airline pilot for fun pilot so he had a plane there's a little airfield near where I live but he took off from there that June day he crashed it he crashed it purposely we think because that's what the air crash guys came to talk to us about they they really investigate these things he had a, a history of mental illness so they knew all that they have to have medicals with with getting your pilot's license so also what you know the state of the plane all fine engines all go all good and what had happened was he put it into a nosedive, was revving, you know, the engines were going full blast. Air crash investigation guy, the, the main one who'd looked into it all, um, came to talk to us, me, me and my two sisters, they're older than me. And he went through it all and he kind of, he didn't say the words, but he was sort of gently trying to say, this is what happened. But in the inquest, they, they said accidental death or something because of the lack of evidence that he had a plan at that point. I don't know. I don't know the full thing about it, but the conclusion was misadventure or accidental death or something. So, you know, maybe it was. And he'd had breakdowns and he'd had a couple of episodes in hospital, had ECT a couple of times. So, you know, there's that familial history. Yeah. And how much more time goes on before you have what you consider that suicide attempt? So that actually was 2007. So so about a decade goes by. Yeah. How would you yeah. characterize those years? Those years. So I did have I did have a, an episode that I was definitely feeling feeling suicidal two years after my dad died. A brief, if you like, episode, say three months, where I was given medication again. Mm-hmm. Um, but not, I didn't have any psychological input or any psychiatric input. It was just GP gave me meds. You know, I, I actually came out of that quite quickly. I retrained or not retrained. I did another degree in physiotherapy, 2001. So so I worked as a physio in the NHS for about six or seven years. So yeah, saved enough that I could go traveling with my then boyfriend. We planned a trip to uh, India and Nepal. We were going to go to New Zealand together and Canada. We were going to come around. 
it's a bit long, but it does lead to where I ended up. Yeah. So we started off in September 2006 and went straight to India and then pretty much Delhi and then flew straight to Kathmandu. Spent yeah a couple of months in Nepal trekking, ended up in Bali for Christmas. So this is now December 2006. Christmas Eve, rooftop restaurant, Bali, overlooking the sea, you know, absolutely stunning. And said, boyfriend, I could feel it coming anyway. I I'd, I'd sense things were changing as we were trekking. He basically says, I, I don't really see us anything happening when we get home. I think this is great. You know, I love traveling with you, but, you know, I think let's go our separate ways when we get home. Wow. Bear in mind, getting home was another six months of traveling. You got to wait to say that, but I get it. Okay. He's long to maybe make me feel better. You could be Kylie Minogue sat there and I'd be saying the same thing, but... It slightly put a bit of a weird thing on the trip. You know, I was in my early 30s. You know, I'd envisaged maybe settling down when we got back, you know, having a family. You know, I was at that sort of stage. But yeah, it was not to be. But I think that was probably the start of me starting to go into one of my dips, at which point then then boyfriend decided to just carry on the travels that we'd already planned on his own. So around that time, I literally again, dropped off a cliff with mood and I got really depressed. And that was the, the first time I actually attempted properly suicide. You know, it's amazing I am alive. There was obviously something in me that kind of stopped it. You came pretty close. Yeah. And I, you know, I felt terror, guilt, you know, massive guilt. You know, I was lucky. It was almost like it wasn't meant to be. You know, I, it was almost like, I don't know, a higher force. I don't know. It did scare me. I was like, I can't believe I've just done that. You didn't tell anybody? No, not then. Yeah. And you're certainly not going to go back to a hospital after the stay you had, right? You're not going to check yourself in anywhere. No. And I think that's the that's the dangerous thing about the whole stigma around it is that my experience had been so horrendous at age 19 yeah. that I thought if I tell anyone, you know, I'm going to end up being sectioned or, and I, I hadn't been sectioned in the past, but I, I knew that's, that's what can happen to people. And section so- means long-term stay there. Sectioned it, over here means um, I think two doctors and someone else, another professional have. If they think you actually have to be in hospital, they can section you for twenty eight days to be in a hospital, assessed and treated. The, but that word is telling. In my mind, it's you're over there, apart, away, and it's not what people. Uh... Do you have a second attempt? Now, the, the the last year. Yeah. All right. So from two thousand seven. Hmm to 2021 i meet my husband now husband um yeah. in 2008 we've got two children 11 and 9 relatively normal life for that time does your husband and or kids know about m- wife or mother's mental health challenges and or attempts certainly my husband does know everything mm. the kids they do know that i wasn't well and part of that was mentally but i think their focus was the cancer they understand that more. Sure. And they were very worried about that. So that almost deflected from the what I perceive was the bigger thing. Right, right. As we talked about in the beginning. Does yeah. your sister or your children know that you're on a podcast called Suicide Noted? No, because yeah, I guess I just don't want to scare them. I you know, I don't I don't think they're at a stage where they would necessarily understand and I don't yeah. want them to feel that. I was going to leave them, you know? Sure. Mm. So can we kind of circle back around? And then I have some other questions I want to work in, if that's okay. Yep. Last summer, 
about a year ago, you get the diagnosis. So did, when you got the diagnosis, you said then there was an, you've gone through these dips. So how bad did the dip get this time? So this was the worst. My diagnosis was late stage. I was stage 3C. So you have three A, B, and C. In plain talk, you're going to die. And actually in my mind, that, yeah. That's what I mean in your mind. Yeah. Brutally, kind of the stats, which we all know stats can be, you know, misleading. But the one I sort of took away initially in the early days was um, 50% of people with my type of cancer would still be alive after five years and 50% wouldn't. And there's no cure. So that's the other thing. The gynae oncology surgeon said, I'm, I'm afraid there's no cure. We can treat treat it, but at the moment, we don't have a cure for it. What kind of cancer is it? Ovarian. So how does that relate to, or how does that connect to the dip? And then there's another attempt coming. One of the procedures I had to have for a proper diagnosis, so I knew I had cancer, I had to have a laparoscopy, which is when they go in with cameras into your abdomen and check out what's going on, take samples. And that was done in July, mid-July last year. And the samples are assessed actually in America. They send a lot out to America, actually, because America's a long way forward on cancers and genome sequencing. And, you know, it's very complicated, but... I mean, we love hearing we're better than you. (laughs) You birthed us, so we really like being better than you. It doesn't happen a lot, but we love it. So after that laparoscopy, I don't think I'm great with general aesthetics, but basically I went into massive dip after coming out of that. It was only a day surgery, but I was already feeling like life life's pretty much over for me. I got that bad and I was sort of hallucinating a bit after the general anesthetic. That was only brief. The subsequent days, I was literally like so bad that my husband was... I mean, in terms of I had intrusive thoughts, I just couldn't think about anything else but what was going on in my head. You know, I wasn't functioning properly. You were home? The crisis team or the GP and then what they call the crisis team were involved. And this is when I was then back to a hospital, not inpatient, but I had psychiatric appointments, mental health nurse appointments and blah, um, which was when it really was awful. All right. So when you dip, they put you on Prozac. Sorry, I've got that wrong, actually. Metazapine. And then it was changed to Prozac. This particular psychiatrist was, in my mind, he was a bit like an interrogator. I had to get it right. It was really bizarre. Could anybody have done or said something that would have prevented that from happening? I don't mean God changing your diagnosis. Like in yeah. reality, words from your husband, a kinder therapist, or was that going to be what that was it? I think that was probably it. Yeah. When was that? When was the second attempt? October. You got the diagnosis in about three or so months later. Yeah. And was that at home? It was. Yeah. I was in such a state of numbness. I didn't feel anything. I couldn't feel happiness, sadness, nothing. I was completely detached from the children, to be honest. I I found it quite hard to be with them because I didn't feel anything for them at that stage. Right. I was literally like I was an empty vessel. I wish there were words that could capture what that really feels like, you know, so people Mm. had a sense of it. I don't probably there aren't, but wow. Well, I actually came up with, I I thought, quite brilliant way of saying Mm. the sort of war zone in my brain, the pain I had, had manifested itself in a physical disease way. I should have been on ITU, intensive Mm -hmm. care unit. I don't think people can get that. 
Yeah. It's too much of a jump for people who haven't been through something even remotely similar. Maybe they can. I hope they can to get people to understand how much pain, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I just don't know if you can understand it unless you've been there. Well, you can have empathy either way. Yeah, you can have empathy. Yeah. Which, you're, which, which several people you encountered, including people from the medical profession, did not show at all. And it's not a justification because you're just doing your job. Sean says you're a criminal. Quit your job. Go do something else. Go, go do something else because you're doing damage. But no one gives a shit what I think. Um, no, but I, you know, I do agree um, totally. In a sort of weird, yeah, a weird good position in my perspective on it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I had the cancer side and the treatment I had from the oncology lot, the, the, the surgeons mm-hmm. were second to none. The chemotherapy, the nurses mm-hmm. were amazing, mm-hmm. everything. They had an energy about them. They were kind. They were good for them. Yeah. Yep. That it was polar opposite with the psychiatry side of things. It was they moved slowly. They had no energy. Kept us waiting. You know, it was just sort of it was lack of respect. Actually, it was just basic human politeness manners. I don't know. They were doing us a favor. These things are so connected. I've talked about this before about. My experience in this hospital is like, so now, now not only am I maybe probably not going to go back if I have any say over it, but like my friend who's in a lot of pain, like I'm not going to say, hey, maybe you should talk to you. Maybe that's a good place for you. It helped me. I'm not going to be able to say that, honestly. No. So it really does affect more than one person. I think there was a part of me, always a tiny part that didn't want it to happen because of, you know, my children and what they find and. However bad I felt, I couldn't do that. You know, it was literally like, I've just got to keep going for them. You know, I, the attempt happened. I, I did tell the psychiatrist, blah, and that made actually it worse with him. Yeah. It was like he was crossing me. But in all that, I kind of, I think I drew a line under, I'm not going to do that again. Because however bad I'm feeling, I will change my children's life, my husband's life, my, you know, and beyond irreparably forever. Do you feel that way today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you, when you again, you live, so your kids don't find out? I don't think so. My mum found out because my husband told her and it all comes from a caring place. They want to just protect me and help me. And he's been amazing. He's, he's really... Um, your husband? Yeah. And he's not had any, you know, mental illness issues like I have. So, you know, I don't think he totally understands it. I, I, I couldn't expect him to. And, and it's been quite traumatic for him to have to look after yeah. me. He's had to do everything for, I mean, literally everything with uh, the children and school, taking them to school, taking them back, all the house stuff. I, I, I literally sort of checked out in terms of doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd spend days in bed, drunk vodka. This is after? This is sort of pre and after, yeah. How did we not talk about the booze yet? Well, I guess wasn't a constant thing it was I suddenly was like oh my god I could try that you know I hadn't really been drinking that much in fact pre in one of the lockdowns I had I had sort of nine months off of drinking anything in the last sort of 10 years I would say I wasn't drinking that much I, I drink wine you know fairly regularly but not nothing like when I was a student at uni you know completely different ball game when I probably did binge drink quite a lot and beer and cider and you know so comparatively for the last 10 12 years since having kids I've been what I'd call a normal drinker not nothing nothing over the top yeah and then this period of 
of sort of abstinence. Um, I think, you know, I think lockdown, I would have either, I could have either turned into an alcoholic or, or do what I did. It was sort of that decision. But yeah, when I was feeling really awful, you know, desperate, I, yeah, I turned to vodka and neat vodka and I knew it was secret. You know, you can't detect it so well. Have you thought about ending your life since then? No. And I, I feel in a very different mode like that. I kind of now, so I had major surgery end of December for the cancer. So I had seven rounds, sorry, five rounds of chemo from early September to mid-November. Mm. Um, it's done in cycles. So every three weeks you have a day where you have the, the transfusions. During that, actually, that's during that time when I used to listen to your podcast a lot. Really? Um, oh, that, that long ago? So when I was diagnosed, I, I've always loved podcasts. But when I was diagnosed and going through what I was going through, I was looking, searching for people like me and I couldn't find anyone. You know, I just felt like I was the only one with cancer and depression. So I started, yeah, Yeah. I I think I just stuck in suicide into podcast search thing. The other one I found was Leo Flowers, Before You Kill Yourself. So I used to listen like avidly to your two things as well as another one living with ovarian cancer, which is a, a, a British lady who's a lovely lady. And I've actually recorded a thing with her. I think you're doing a great thing because, you know, what's missed out in so many of these charities and so on, there's never a mention of the attempt survivors. Yeah. You know, very you've rarely. got to hear their story and what's helped them. And because yeah. how are you ever going to learn otherwise? I don't, I just don't get it. When people give me unsolicited advice, because everyone's a fucking podcast genius out there, they're like, well, why don't you have experts on that? I'm like, you don't understand the show. Why don't you have doctors that you don't understand the show? It's only one thing, and that's all it's ever going to be. I mean, yeah. I shouldn't say ever, but probably. Like, I don't understand. I think it's why. brilliant. Well, thank you. I'm glad mm. you were a part of it now. How is your cancer right now? I finished chemo treatment. I had the surgery. Yeah, last chemo was on the 11th of March. There was a six-week break. The oncologist has then put me on uh, this drug called Niraparib, which is a maintenance drug. It's called a PARP inhibitor. So it's very complicated, but it's meant to basically stop regrowth of these cancerous nodules. Quite high levels of recurrence with this particular type. So, yeah, I think I'm on the best treatment I can be at the moment. You know, there's, there's always things, new things coming out at the moment. I think I'm on the, on the best, the maintenance therapy, which has the side effects, but... I'm sort of getting to grips with those a bit. At the moment, CT scan showed no evidence for disease. The blood tests are all good. Everything's sort of as good as it can be. Mm. If you didn't have children, this is a hard conditional if, do you think that suicide would still be an option? No, I don't think so. Although, okay, no children. Um, I love skiing and quite high level scary skiing. And you have to be really prepared. I can imagine I would, yeah, I probably live my life a bit more riskily doing that kind of thing where I would think, well, if I fall down that call, well, you know, and I don't make it, then brilliant, great way to go. You know, that kind of thing, rather than a, the more obvious sort of attempt. Of all the people that know about either of your attempts, and it doesn't sound like there's a too many no. outside of like a mean doctor in an ugly hospital. Actually, I have told, sorry, now I've, I've, I've sort of misled you a bit. I have um, told probably about 
Let's say 10 of my close friends. 10 people know. Of those 10, and there's a reason they're your close friends, obviously. How would you characterize how, how they talk about it with you, if they talk about it with you? I'm sort of trying to get at the way people engage with people, particularly around this thing. Is it weird? Is it nice? Is it helpful? How would you characterize it? Yeah, mostly um, it's not weird. I've always been really honest. I can't, I'm not very good at lying. So I've always um, been totally honest about how I'm feeling, which I think has sort of saved me really. I think in the in my darkest days, I've always been honest, which actually, if you're honest, you know, you're going to get looked after. Friends and family are going to watch out for you, you know, properly. There's a few that I would have been able to ring up. Uh, one in particular who, you know, she literally said you could have a noose around your neck, phone me up. And I could have done, I know I could have done. She would have answered and she'd have been over despite having three children. And so I'm very lucky in that. When you're very depressed, you don't pick up the phone though. Right. You don't answer it. But yeah, this one particular friend who actually, she's she's not a mental health nurse or anything, but she works with people in their own homes who are, you know, struggling with schizophrenia or whatever. And she just gets it. So she's amazing. Yeah. You do not need to understand something so, so well to have empathy. No, no. I would say that the, those that know have shown empathy as best they can. You know, they. Yeah. I think there's an element of, come on now as well, you know, and there's that pressure to, to get better, you know, to be positive, you know, and actually at times it's like the last thing you want to hear is be positive because you'd love to be, but. Uh, Obviously, right, right, right. <laughs> on the whole, the, Whatever they say, it does come from a place of caring. It's just sometimes you you can't hear it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Telling someone to be positive is just kind of a dumb thing to say. It just is. Yeah. Like most most people who aren't in your eyes positive, they probably want to be, and they're aware that they're not. Your little poke there isn't going to make the difference. It's just going to remind them (laughs) of the struggle that they're not able to overcome. Yeah. How fucking hard is this? I didn't go to school for this. How hard is this, people? Also, I want to commend your friends because you have, it sounds like, more than one. Yeah. But I think, really, the difference between sometimes making it, not making it, is one per just having at least one. Absolutely. And anybody who's hearing, and you know, I, I do sometimes get on this sort of soapbox, but I try not to. But most people, not all, you've got some people have some limitations. You can be that person for somebody. You can. Yeah. yeah. And that really legitimately might make the difference. I had a conversation with a guy today. We were talking about him. He's challenged, trying to overcome loneliness. And it just keeps coming up. And I mm. keep thinking, I think this is the killer more than all the other killers is the loneliness. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think the real problem is people think they're legitimately being helpful and kind. Mm. And they're not. And they're not. That's the part. I don't think people are often, like you're saying, their intentions are good. But the conversation I wouldn't want to have more of is, right, here's the rub. You think those words are, your well-intentioned words are working or helpful, but they're not. How do we fix that? I just don't know. The person that I've talked about, the one who said, phone me whenever. Yeah. Literally whenever. And I, I knew, I trusted her that she would do as she said. So we used to walk together a lot. And she, she would be very much be with me in that moment whatever I said, she wouldn't try and take me out of it. She just listened and never said that be positive. She just was there with me, kind of alongside me. And she also had at the time, the flip side of it, very good friend of hers, best friend, 
commit suicide. So the flip side from her being alongside me was also she's like, you can't do it, you know, mm. which was also good because the, the person that had killed themselves was a mother of two young children like my age, my children's age. I think her ex-husband and children found her. That was really kind of for me also a big like, no, I can't do it. Okay. Yeah. And also another uh, a separate thing is um, my best friend that I've known for years, who was very helpful around the diagnosis and, and beyond her niece committed suicide last November, age 20. But get this, she the way she did it, she threw herself out the back of an ambulance, being transferred from a you know normal hospital, as it were, to a mental a psychiatric unit, you know, on life support for three or four days, her her parents and family were able to say goodbye and she was training to be a paramedic and I know from speaking to her to her family that she'd been let down on many occasions from the age of 14 to then by you know doctors and A&E saying you're just um, attention seeking and discharging her without you know letting her go she was found on bridges just horrendous and it ended like that and I'm like what the actual fuck? A, a 20 year old is training to be a paramedic. She used to want to be a doctor, you know, can kill herself like that in this day and age. I mean, it's absolutely bonkers. And um, that really upset me, actually. You know, I, the, her mum, and, and, you know, she's got a lovely family. She's got two brothers. You know, they've got to live with that now. And they've got a lot of first things to go. So she's just had a 21st in April mm. this year. You know, that was her 21st birthday. And they've got the first Christmas coming. And, you know, it's just a tra- absolutely tragic and, it, you know, really it shouldn't have happened. I, there's massive failings and, um, you know, that's another reason why I'm speaking on this because I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I just feel desperate. I work in healthcare as a physio and I and my personal experiences and it's um, it feels a bit archaic, you know, what's happening. And, I, and, and very little's changed from my experience as a 19-year-old to my recent experience in of right. mental health care system yeah doesn't feel very caring no Um, not enough people particularly people who have power give a shit we have resources we have money we have talent we have skills that's not the issue at all i mean of course there's advances that are going to be made that need to be made for sure but it's absurd lots of people not lots but you know five or six that i know not necessarily well but i've had contact with or i've met or you know who have taken their lives a couple by three years ago now i'd sat next to this particular chap at a a friend's 40th he was a fireman and a farmer and he had a specialism in rescuing um livestock yeah he hung himself a few years back we went to his funeral me and uh, my husband and um who knew him uh, way better than me actually and there wasn't any space you know we had to stand we were standing room only there were people outside there was it was just like a, a mass of people at his funeral. And yet he would probably like to be here, all his friends and beyond friends. And and uh, I've got other stories like that of people we know who've shot themselves. And yeah, I mean, obviously here access is pretty easy. Yeah. But we have this whole thing with um, some things I have, I don't research or at least read about sort of crises with particularly like men, middle-aged men, more so out West in the U.S., where, but it's not only there, where they have easy access to guns, a solitary lifestyle, yeah. no access to mental health, 
it's like every single box is checked and obviously yeah, yeah. the attempt and completion rates are rather high yeah it's like farmers in this country i think vets dentists and farmers are up there on the wow yeah any myths you'd like to dispel the selfishness thing actually how could you be so selfish and i think that's still still quite strong how could you even think about it when you've got two lovely kids and a great life which i do have i can't deny that you know you know i i think my dad if he did take his own life purposefully then i i understand he was in that much pain he couldn't he just couldn't deal with it anymore you know i'd understand i think he's incredibly brave i you know it doesn't make me think any i still love him and you know admire him for the person he was i don't there's no judgment there but i fear that's not the case with you know a fair chunk of of folk I agree. So when you were saying that question, why would you kill yourself if you have a family? That's obviously not really a question, right? I, I think it would be an interesting space to actually ask that question, but as a question, not as a judgment, not as a statement, but just to be curious. You've yeah, got a yeah. family, you're thinking about ending your life. What's that about? Yeah, I would what? say the state I was in, what I was thinking was they'd be better off without me, that I was actually a burden, yeah. that you're in such a an abyss of I would examine every part of my life and with dark spectacles rather than rose colored literally everything I'd done was wrong and I've got quite a good memory long-term memory so I could I can recall conversations and any things that I thought oh god I shouldn't have said that you know I'd ruminate on that for hours I could lie in bed just thinking oh my god I shouldn't have said that maybe I should it's not a great example but you know everything I looked at was my fault Mm-hmm. It was my personality. Also, you know, I probably died of cancer anyway. Let's let them all move on now. You know, my husband meets someone else and they'll all be better off. So I guess that's what sort of was going through my mind. In a, there must be a purpose. I must, you know, I've got a duty to, um, maybe I can be of service. You know, all those sort of things, those words actually, to me, do resonate. Because obviously, being a physio, I actually, you know, I like helping people. So I kind of think, you know, yeah, I've got to carry on what I can do with that. You know, I've got, you know, a good job part time, but uh, and I can be useful. You know, this podcast got me thinking like, you know, I obviously had to psychologically be in a different place to what I was in October, November, whatever it was last year. But certainly when I analyse it, it is that is about sort of the purpose. And and I enjoy, you know, these sports that I was talking about skiing and swimming. And that's for me what life's about. And obviously family and children and first sports, then the family. Let's put it in prior. Let's prioritize it. <laughs> Give me a break. Sorry, kids. You're third. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. You're doing good stuff. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I would typically talk about suicide related things, but in your case, I'm going to say, I just hope that your cancer stays the fuck away. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Me too. Fingers crossed and all that. <laughs> Uh, thanks again and I will uh, I'll talk to you I'll connect with you soon hope, hope your evening or it's actually late there go to bed would you yeah I better check what everyone's doing and uh, yeah <laughs> alright Becky take care thanks again thanks bye. see you bye as always thanks so much for listening and all of your support and special thanks to Becky across pond in england thank you becky if you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk please reach out hello at suicide noted.com on facebook or twitter at suicide noted 
And you can follow a link in the show notes if you'd like to leave us a recorded message. There are also other links if you'd like to help us out with a financial contribution as we try to share these stories by these survivors so we can help more people around the world feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. However you support us, we really do appreciate it. And that is all for episode number 129. Stay strong, do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.